0: This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal.
1: I'm speaking today with Dr. Gillian Horton. Dr. Horton is a general internist in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and has long championed the belief that compassion in medical education leads to more compassionate physicians. Dr. Horton was the Associate Dean of Undergraduate Student Affairs at the University of Manitoba and now directs programs in wellness and medical humanities at the Max Rady College of Medicine. In addition to this, Dr. Horton works with people with addiction at the Health Sciences Center in Winnipeg, and she's the author of a new book, We Are All Perfectly Fine, A Memoir of Love, Medicine, and Healing. Welcome to the Life Speak podcast,
0: Dr. Horton. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Marianne.
1: Now, I'm going to get to your book in a minute, but first, in an article that you wrote for the Globe and Mail, you shared some pretty shocking uh, 2019 data from the Canadian Medical Association. One in three Canadian physicians experience burnout. More than one in three screened positive for depression. In the prior 12 months, almost 1 in 10 had experienced suicidal ideation, and other surveys have shown that depression in medical residents occurs at a rate that is almost three times that of the general population. Were these statistics surprising to you?
0: You know, I can't say they surprise me at all, I'm sorry to say, and I think... Having lived in medicine, you know, since I started medical school in 1997, I think probably sometime six or seven years into my training, I began to become aware of just how diseased and how Disease promoting and disease causing the culture of medicine is. And so that awareness had been dawning on me gradually to the point that I would say in the last five years, as data increasingly has begun to show the kind of patterns that you're talking about, they not only do not surprise me, but sometimes I'm surprised that the numbers aren't even worse.
1: Wow. You have a column with the Canadian Medical Association Journal called Dear Dr. Horton, where you invite In terms to post anonymous questions, what are you hearing from young doctors right now?
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I love that column. It's gone on a pause because I'm doing so many other writing projects right now. But one of the things I just loved about it was, as you said, you know, it was an opportunity for people to write me anonymously who were trainees to share um, some of their Questions that they might not normally be comfortable asking anyone else. And, you know, the themes I would say that appeared the most consistently were uh, hopelessness, a feeling of mismatch, a sense that I went into this career expecting one thing and what I'm seeing is something completely different. Also, a lot of messages and themes around grief, um, emotions, being able to show emotions, and a lot of uncertainty around how deep are my relationships allowed to be here. You know, there's a lot of mixed messaging that people get in medicine. They're told to be Compassionate, but they're also often told to, you know, really emphasize boundaries. And sometimes they are not really correctly taught when it comes to like what that means. You know, we've emphasized like professional boundaries and things that are really important. You know, don't borrow money from a patient. Don't have a, you know, relationships that cross obviously certain kinds of romantic or sexual boundaries are clearly totally (laughs) inappropriate. But what's happened is that messaging has expanded so that people have begun to question really simple things. You know, can I see my patient as a friend. I don't mean socialize with them as a friend, but can I perceive them that way in my heart? Can I care about them the way I care about my neighbor? And, you know, the simple answers are, of course you can. But when I really step back and look at the the questions that are really in young doctors' hearts, often when they reach out to me or when I work with them and teach them, it's so often about the emotional heart of who they're allowed to be. And I I think it's a question that obviously applies deeply to medicine, but has some universal application to other jobs as well.
1: Do you think it's possible to be a good doctor and not carry some of that guilt around with you about so many things that
0: maybe you felt you didn't do the right way? What a great question. You know, I might reframe it as a a bit as saying, I don't think it's possible to not carry grief. I don't think it's possible to be a good doctor and not carry uncertainty and not have things that continue to linger with you as just unresolved uh, chords for most of your career. But the guilt, I think, so much of medicine is a shame-based culture. So historically, the way that medicine has handled mistakes and difficulties and, you know, something goes wrong, you miss a diagnosis, a patient has a bad outcome. And we have really um, been conditioned Over the years, to see those things as personal failings. And in fact, when we look at medical errors, you know, sometimes they're thinking errors, sometimes they're knowledge errors, but just as often they're system errors. Something wasn't caught at moment A, and then there's another interaction where it's missed, and then there's another interaction and another interaction. So, you know, most of the things that we feel bad or guilty about that we attribute to ourselves are actually. Related to much bigger problems, we're just one little part of a of a terrible story that unfolded. So, I think the guilt—it's possible for us to learn to see that differently, work with that differently. But no, I don't really think it's possible in medicine to have a um, a career where you are, you know, heart led and just fully present with people, and you don't carry forward grief and uncertainty that's unresolved. But I do think it's possible. To learn to work with that differently.
1: Um, I want to talk about the book. We're all perfectly fine. You know, I was so engrossed in this book that I kept forgetting to take notes, (laughs) 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 which is always a good sign that I'm really into. I'm like, damn it, I have to go back (laughs) and (laughs) take some things. You know, it's it's achingly funny. Um, It's heartbreaking at times. You sort of, you know, I found myself laughing and the next minute I'm crying, you know, and, and despite the fact that I'm not a doctor, I felt there was so much in that book that you talk about your experience, holding on to guilt about things, not wanting to rock the boat, uh, not wanting to um, needing to sort of feel you can, you live up to what you're doing. There was just so much in there that I could relate to. I think as a human being, as a, as a woman, I think a lot of women can relate to what you experienced, but let's talk about what the book is about. So the book centers around a retreat that you attended for doctors who are suffering from burnout. You call it doctor rehab, and you were on the brink of, in your own words, professional and personal collapse. You've since gone back several times. Tell me about how you ended up attending the retreat, which you were very skeptical about when you first went.
0: Yeah, well, you know, in the years before I discovered the work that was being done at the University of Rochester, I had been working, as you mentioned at the beginning, as a medical educator for years and years. I mean, this was one of the the core aspects of my job, and also was my of my professional identity. I think, and so I had been really looking in the years before that uh, to understand what kinds of skills I could learn to help teach the next generation of doctors to, you know, deal with the incredible stress, uh, physical and emotional of being a physician. And so, uh, you know, I was looking in very broad strokes and really becoming, developing some expertise at that point in the literature around physician burnout and so-called physician wellness. And then this program just sort of kept popping up in the uh, literature and I became aware of it. And then as I share in the book, it so happened that uh, one of the two uh, people who developed this program, a physician by the name of Mick Krasner uh, was coming to give a talk in Winnipeg. And, you know, I went to this talk and as as I share in the book, I was still a bit skeptical about how this could apply to me. I think I always had this sense like, you know, this work is worthwhile, mindfulness is worthwhile, but my brain is just different. You know, I really believe that a lot of my kind of cognitive framings of things were just immutable, that they were just part of how my brain was wired. So I went to this thing and I sort of, you know, I, I think it was just because I felt a bit of a personal connection with this doctor. He also was sort of humorous and and a, a bit of a, a a bit of a disturber in a, in a good way. I recognize that, I guess. And so I just made this kind of impulsive decision uh, because we exchanged a couple of emails. I was like, you know what, I can go and try this out and it'll probably be... Flaky and whatever, and it'll give me some good stories to tell my friends over coffee when I come home. And in fact, that first trip put me on a path that changed my life, and that I really do see as having been very instrumental at giving me back certain things that I think uh, 20 years in medicine had stripped me of, you know, really not just cognitive skills, not just skills in mindfulness and and some of the other things, but really reconnecting me Deeply and profoundly with my professional community in a way that was a bit different than anything I had ever experienced before in my life. And if I really look at why that experience was so impactful, yes, of course, part of it was mindfulness, part of it was learning new skills, part of it was, you know, learning more emotional self regulation. But a big part of what was so healing about that experience was connecting with other physicians who were ready to speak the truth about their personal personal. personal and professional lives and moving forward together with those people in a way that has just been transformative
1: the the retreat brings up a lot about your own family the the emotional load that you've carried around some members of your family and especially your your older sister Wendy who had a severe brain injury that affected her ability to talk and to walk she had a, a big impact on your decision to become a doctor tell me about Wendy
0: Yeah. So, my sister died, I guess, almost six years ago now. This year, she was 52. And uh, she was born uh, a neurologically um, perfectly intact child, no uh, no health issues whatsoever. But uh, sometime around age four, she began experiencing symptoms related to a brain tumor and those took almost two years to be diagnosed tragically. So she had um, brain surgery at this young age and a post-operative meningitis that left her with a constellation of just profound and life-changing disabilities. So she was, um, uh, you know, almost legally blind. She was profoundly hearing impaired. Uh, She had profound physical impairments. She um, had a lot of behavioral challenges because these kinds of brain injuries affect our impulse control and they affect our, you know, she had no short-term memory essentially and her long-term memory had some uh, gaps in it too. But she you know, retained this, her deepest humanity. You know, she remained exactly who she was as a human being before that brain tumor and developed uh, into that person as an adult. She just uh, lacked a lot of the filters as well as having all these disabilities. So, she was an incredibly blunt person. You know, she, she was utterly hilarious. I mean, I have been in practice for 20 years now, I've never met another person, anything like her. I mean, she really was so unique and I think if I really think about what my sister taught me more than anything, it was the concept of unconditional love. You know, it was really that somebody can uh, be impaired and do things that are not their fault. They can, you know, scratch you and swear at you and call you a jerk and worse. And then, you know, they have the memory of that is gone. It's just like the channel has changed and they're back to, you know, who they are. And just it taught me a kind of, um, presence with people a kind of willingness to just be with people as they are in the moment and also i think she really left me with the ability to see people um despite whatever their impediments are you know to just sit and know that that process uh takes time that you know when especially when people have impaired communication or disabilities um that you know you the onus is on you to sit down and do the work of getting to know them and to log those hours so she taught me this kind of you know just patience and just it gave me left me with an ability to see really wonderful things uh, in people and in particular in my patients that often in medicine, you know, we just don't encourage people to nobody spends the time to get to know who the person is because we are so fixated on efficiency. So she taught me a different definition of efficiency and, and a different, I think a very different way of just being in the world. You talk about, you know, how in
1: in a lot of ways she was sort of dehumanized just based on the notes um, that the doctors or the medical professionals would sometimes write on her chart and how much that made you angry. Um, and I think dehumanized is, you know, is the right word for that. Um, and and you talk about wanting to, how those doctor's notes are sort of summing people up, but don't tell the story of the fact. I think there was one, one example that you gave of somebody who um, maybe had alcoholism or a weight problem, but you know, you had actually spoken to them and knew so much more about their background, about how their father had died um, when they were very young and how those notes don't tell the whole story. So, you know, doctors having, you know, less and less time to spend with patients, how, how can doctors learn about their patients, humanize this, you know, short interaction when they don't often have the time to do it? Yeah. Uh,
0: You know, that is is such an important question. And it's one that medical residents and learners um, often ask me. And, you know, the first thing I would say is that a lot of this is attitudinal. You know, we both know uh, if we step outside of medicine for a minute and you're having an interaction with someone in any encounter, you know, maybe you're ordering a cup of coffee you know that it actually doesn't take a lot for the person on the other end to make you feel special, to make you feel as though they're glad that you're there and that they're glad to be serving you. And I don't just mean serving food; I mean being of servant. You know, or or um, I said servant because I was sort of thinking of this segment, yeah. this, this idea of, serv- of servant leadership. You know, which yes. we which we often talk about as a as a stance in terms of when we occupy leadership roles. But you know, being of service. There, it it is such a micro adjustment to go from thinking what now to shifting to how can I help this person? You know, what am I going to get to do to improve this person's life in this moment today? And I know, again, I I get pushback from medical learners and and colleagues who are very burnt out or cynical, or perhaps sometimes just don't share the same values that I share. And they say, well, it takes more time and we don't have time. And I say, you know what, I'm going to show you that you have time. You know, I've made teaching videos for learners illustrating the difference, you know, just what a few extra words in an interaction can achieve, how it can completely alter the tone. And, you know, the idea that we like save time by not finding out things about people is also sort of a superficial concept I think because very often we just end up paying that time elsewhere so we don't invest time in establishing a strong um, alliance with a patient when we first meet them or a connection with them and then maybe some conflict arises or maybe we don't get to know each other and like each other and then when that person is calling your office asking for information you feel hounded instead of thinking oh yes I know them, you know it's a it's like a it's just a complete reframing but I guess the other thing that i think is so important when we think about time there's an article in the New England journal that ran in 2018 there was a three-part series about just sort of the culture of medicine and how we relate and treat treat each other and uh, the author of that article is a wonderful cardiologist her name is Lisa Rosenbaum and she has this this phrase in this article that I would just get a as a tattoo, if I were a tattoo person. And the phrase is that efficiency is a value judgment. So what you find efficient in a clinical encounter or an encounter with a client or a customer or just somebody in your life may not be what I find efficient. And that is, you know, again, because of our values will reflect a different interpretation of whether that encounter was efficient. So, to me, when I see a resident or a colleague go and talk to a patient without establishing any rapport, without connecting with that person, without offering the kind of um, human contact and connection that would. Le- actually comforts people, makes them feel better, can some can be shown to decrease their cortisol, their stress level, decreases their heart rate, their blood pressure, you know, all those things. When I see people interacting with patients without that quality of uh, relationship, I say that was not an efficient encounter. You didn't do the most basic thing that you need to do in order to care for this person, in order to get them to follow the advice that you hope that they will follow. If they like you more, they're more likely to take your advice. So part of efficiency is trying to establish relationships. So you can see that a lot of it, it's just like a superficial definition of efficiency as a units of time on a single occasion. And it's just, its um, it doesn't in any way, you know... It, like if that definition doesn't reflect your value personally, one of the things that I've really learned is, you know, not only to teach people to question it, but to constantly question myself, what the system is making me do and how it's, how this the values that are sort of espoused in what the system expects of me, how are they up against my own values and how can I preserve my own values in those encounters? So those are, those are all the... The kinds of thoughts that arise for me when when we talk about those issues, people want to be seen. Mm-hmm. And it, it is absolutely, it is like the most fundamental need, you know. And the when we. Learn something when we take that, you know, it's not even an extra moment. I think we have to stop suggesting in medicine that it is extra time, that it's an add on. When we upfront take those, take the time, incorporate in our definition of what is necessary to have a proficient clinical encounter. The time to see, the time to show that we have seen someone, to acknowledge, you know, if someone is sitting in front of us and they look afraid or they're grieving or there are tears on their face, to just to see that, to reflect in our words and our actions that we've seen that. It is an absolutely fundamental part of not just a clinical encounter, but any meaningful encounter with another human being.
1: Okay. I, wanna, I just want to read this one quote that I really liked from the book where you said, there's a kind of love between doctor and patient that is more personal, more timeless than most people could ever imagine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think patients can play
0: a role in the humanization of medicine? A hundred percent. And I think... It- there's this concept, my colleague who I spoke about earlier, Mick Krasner, talks about the idea of bi-directional healing. So we sometimes have this idea that we are the ones, you know, we're there and we like during COVID too, we've had a lot of uh, narrative around like physician and healthcare worker as hero. But, you know, again, when you reframe things and think of it as not just that you're there to heroically do this or that, um, that you're there in this kind of like you can sort of see how even that concept creates a bit of a power differential. You're doing something that, you know, you are personally deserving praise or to be rewarded for, not in any way to undermine, you know, the incredible efforts of healthcare providers during this last year. I mean, it, it has been phenomenal. When that is the only narrative that you have access to, what you forget is that patients are also deeply enriching our lives. You know, they are offering us something. And I've had too many clinical encounters to even be able to choose one off the top of my head where, you know, patients have allowed me to um, write some grief or tragedy in my own past, you know, without sharing details of stories that would identify people. I can think in the last few years in particular, since my sister has died of a couple of patients who my ability to just be there for those families because of what I knew from being my sister's sister and their ability, the healing power of them also seeing that I had lost someone who was similar to their family member. The the comfort that I derive from knowing that not only did I understand their journey, but they also understood mine. I mean, that has been a balm for me in these last several years. It has been one of the most comforting things that I have experienced. It's so, again, you know, you might start by thinking of it like, oh, I'm able to provide this great service because of what I've lived through, because of what I do, but actually, it comes back to what I you said before, Mariana, being seen, you know, when, when my patients and their families also see me in, in a way that allows me to know that someone has understood something about my experience, like that is a gift of the highest Degree. And by not letting people know anything about us, and again, well-boundaried stuff, right? You don't dump your own trauma on people. You don't share things that are not going to be helpful to them. You, It's different in psychiatry, right? Psychiatrists necessarily have to have a different concept of boundaries because of transference and counter-transference. But, you know, the idea that... If I have a patient with a profound disability and in my family I live through something similar and maybe them knowing that can help them to know how I see them and and, and to know with some relief that they are not going to have to explain to me everything about the complexity of their life, that maybe I can know some of that you know, that that's useful. So this idea that we can't share who we are or anything about our personal histories, our, our losses, our personal stories, it is one of the things that has cut us off from what you asked about at the beginning, that the healing that can, that patients can bring to us that, that bi-directional healing and what we both gain from the experience of just being there together in that moment.
1: Mindfulness has played a big part for you in your own self-care with your profession. Um, What needs to happen to reduce those scary statistics about doctors that we talked about
0: uh, earlier? So, you know, we know that when we look at the problem of physician burnout, the literature very clearly tells us that organizational factors are the primary drivers of physician burnout. And one of the problems with the conversation about physician burnout, physician distress is, and one of the reasons that people are sometimes closed off to it is the conversation often begins with, you know, you should be more mindful. You should, you know, learn to relax. You should do some yoga and people understandably their backs just get, up you know and their the hair on the back of their head stands up and they think I work in an inhumane system, and you're telling me to be different. So I think the first thing that really, as a culture, as a profession, that we have to do is acknowledge some of the fundamental truths. And one of the fundamental truths is medicine as a system is doing a lot to destroy people. And you know, some of the examples, the culture can be very nasty. The culture can be very hierarchical. Um, abuse is often a part of our experience as as learners. And, you know, what do you mean by abuse? Verbal abuse, um, you know, really psychologically unsafe environments, someone making you feel that your omission is responsible for killing a patient. I mean, that's, you know, and again, I gave the example at the beginning of medical errors, how they're usually systematic, multi- factorial they rarely are just about one person's mistake and and these are things that leave lifelong scars right and also you know working these 36 hour shifts that we all do when we're training staying up for 36 hours i mean that wouldn't be allowed you know, that would be regarded as inhumane if you were doing that to someone in a first world prison, we would say you can't do that. So why are we, And nor should you ever do that. So why are we allowed to inflict this um, on, you know, medical trainings and on physicians as well? So that's part one, all those things have to change. And that is 80% of the problem when we look at the literature and when we look at our own lives you know we know that about 80% of what is wrong with medicine we can't necessarily control directly but the other 20% is, there? there is control that we can exert there. We can find a locus of control. And so, that's where these other things really, you know, begin to come in and can be very impactful for us as individuals. And so, when we talk about mindfulness or uh, other kind of cognitive reprogramming strategies, self-regulation strategies, one of the things is, you know, you can't just fix A problem in somebody's life by offering them a one hour seminar at lunch. You can see, as you alluded to in the book, you know, for me, this was a huge commitment. And it was really committing to learning an entirely new skill set as if it was a technical skill set, as if I was learning to do a new procedure or, you know, adding something to my professional repertoire. And You know, I also think medicine has really been stripped of a lot of its very pro social professional components. So, when we again look at what literature tells us about this, doctors used to have doctors' lounges, and we used to, you know, sit there and eat meals together and just talk about cases and talk about life and whose kids were going to what school. And, you know, most of us, because of electronic charting and other factors, I haven't sat in a doctor's lounge for a decade now. You know, I, I don't even know the code to the one that exists in my hospital. Most of us don't go and join those spaces and, you know, they're communal spaces and they're, they're where we form the bonds that become a part of our community. So our, so there is, you know, it is something else that medicine can do as part of a system. Look at how we begin to restore some of those opportunities for personal connection, that community aspect that I found so healing when I joined program at the University of Rochester, but also making, you know, so that's a system thing, but like also as individuals, we can say, you know what, I consciously need to find ways to connect with my colleagues. I can start a group to do this. I can, you know, go to this conference or program and get to know people and recreate my own uh, communal support that way. So, we do have uh, control over these things in our lives, and it has to be a, a dual-pronged effort. Primarily, the system changing, us working to change our culture, our leaders changing the culture, choosing the right people for leadership. But then, on a personal level, committing to doing some things that are impactful that will actually influence that culture.
1: So we're in the middle of a pandemic. Frontline health workers are experiencing more pressure, more trauma uh, than than ever before. What is making you feel hopeful or
0: optimistic right now? I would say the single biggest thing is the opportunity um, that is often presented by the horrible things in our lives, you know, to really be forced to look at, the situation and the circumstance. And I think, uh, you know, I don't believe in the idea that things have silver linings. I think we, we find salvageable good in um, terrible experiences and we find ways to carry forward that allows us to, you know, weave together something positive out of those things. And so for what I think is going to happen with the pandemic, I think this is forcing us in medicine to say, we now, we were already at our breaking point, And that conversation was picking up more and more traction. You know, the private suffering of, of doctors, the high suicide rate, the, you know, all these other things that you mentioned at the beginning. And now, finally, I think with this being our tipping point, people are willing to say, you know what, white flag, we have to change. We have to entirely rework our attitude towards our own mental health. We have to begin to process our experiences differently, openly. Strategies of repression can no longer be how we approach our difficulties. Um, They can't be just what we're imparting to students, what we're modeling for residents. And I think it's going to have a significant impact in how a lot of our professional organizations conceive of uh, the supports that we offer physicians. So, you know, for the last decade, a lot of our physician support programs have been primarily about once you're in a crisis, you know, so you're severely depressed, you're suicidal, there's a number you can call. Well, what about when you're not, you know, at that point, but you recognize that you That life doesn't feel very good, you know, that just it's joyless, that you're, you know, that you feel isolated, all those other things. I think our support programs and our concept of how we can create a model for offering people support that goes throughout all the stages of their career, you know, I think there's a Growing awareness and urgency to that. That, you know, I I think it is going to create a model, a behavioral model for people that you don't have to wait until your problem is, you know, to use a cancer analogy, stage three or four to seek help. You can begin to initiate that process when you're just noticing, you know, a few warning signs or you're just noticing that life doesn't really feel that great and you just want some support to talk about really difficult things that have happened. So I think that reframe is going to be part of what happens to medicine after the pandemic. Um, And I think people are going to be talking openly about their PTSD as well, because I think as a society, there's been more, um, a lot more discussion and openness around mental health and PTSD is going to be a tremendous problem for a lot of healthcare workers, both during and after the pandemic.
1: So your book is called, We're All Perfectly Fine, A Memoir of Love, Medicine and Healing. It's available now. Thank you for your time today, Dr. Horton.
0: Thank you so much, Marianne, for your beautiful questions. It's just a pleasure to spend time with you today. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast. A production of the Sound Off Media Company.